Hello and welcome to the HPP podcast. This is your host, Arden Castle, and each week we explore a new topic related to the Health Promotion Practice Journal. Whether it's demystifying publishing, breaking down a new article, or discussing public health-related topics with other editorial board members. We hope you enjoy each week's exploration into health promotion practice. Today, I'm joined by Elise Levine-Less and Dr. John Kingsbury, authors of If Someone Has It, I'm Gonna Hit It, Lessons Learned from Minnesota Teens About Vaping. They're going to help us explore this new paper, but before we get started, I'm going to ask them to introduce themselves and have them share where they're calling in from. Elise, we'll go ahead and start with you. Hi, Arden. Thank you so much for having us today on the podcast. My name is Elise Levine-Less. I'm the Executive Director of Tobacco-Free Alliance, a nonprofit organization focusing on preventing youth from using commercial tobacco and prioritizing communities adversely affected by industry marketing and health disparities. My current tobacco prevention focus is on community-based e-cigarette prevention, education, and advocacy to reduce youth access, use, and harms. Yeah, thank you, Arden. My name is John Kingsbury. I'm the tobacco policy evaluator with the Minnesota Department of Health, and I've been in this position for about eight or so years. My work focuses on evaluating commercial tobacco interventions at both the state and the local level, and I also do some work disseminating surveillance and evaluation data to local, state, and national audiences. Excellent. And so you both bring kind of different topic bases to this work here on this paper. And I love the title for this paper, but I want to ask what prompted you both to do this research? That's a great question. Also, when you said the thing about the title, there are so many other titles that I really wanted to call this based on the the things that teens talked about and they said and the slang language they used about vaping. But some of them I think were inappropriate for a an academic journal article. But anyway, so as I said, we work primarily with youth on tobacco prevention, education, and advocacy. And it was in about 2018, we noticed teen misperceptions about e-cigarettes, not understanding that e-cigarettes and vapes are the same product. School administrators telling us about kids who would never smoke cigarettes, they're huddled together around a strawberry vape in the school bathroom. Things that we now know, we, you know, we've heard now for the past few years, but back in 2018, there was, it was a big puzzle to the adults in the room. And so much was happening under the radar on social media and in the teen world that adults from educators to parents to public health professionals just could not see what was happening. And it was, it's interesting as social norms around cigarettes have changed and most young people perceive smoking cigarettes to be dangerous and socially unacceptable, but not vaping. So we needed to understand the appeal of why kids who would likely never pick up a cigarette were vaping. So what we did, so we have a grant from the Minnesota Department of Health and we, under that grant, we decided in 2019 to hold focus groups with teens across Minnesota to learn from them about the why behind teen vaping. And we examined by talking directly with youth, what draws young people to these products, aiming to understand the factors that may be driving current vaping trends and exploring opportunities for improving prevention messaging. And just to add on a little bit there, I think at least did a nice job of kind of laying out, you know, where we were coming from and what we were hoping to find. And so I mentioned that I work at the Minnesota Department of Health and a lot of the work that we do focuses on the survey research. So we can get a lot of really good information that way. But this issue in particular, kind of understanding where youth are coming from and why they're wanting to, why they're so interested in these products 
we felt that talking to them directly would be a really good way of capturing this, you know. So I feel like we got a lot of really good kind of rich, valuable information through these focus groups that we may have not been able to get through a survey. Absolutely. And it sounds like given that disconnect between what adults were assuming folks knew or these connections between vapes and e-cigarettes, it made a lot of sense to go directly to the individuals, the teens, and talk to them and have them talk with each other because I don't think that forums would have gotten that same information out. So what did you learn from these focus groups and from your research? I have to say it was such an interesting adventure because we, they really, kids really open up to you when they know they're in a safe space and they can have a conversation and they really opened up. And what we learned from them was how to really engage kids in conversations about the harms and how important it is to have a conversation, not to, it, it doesn't have to be a lecture on what is bad for you. They get that all the time. They're inundated with that to just get them to think, to talk to them about what do you think about this? How does this impact your life? And we also learned to talk about, you know, stresses that teens face and acknowledge that it's the stress that teens are under and what are healthy coping mechanisms that they can use to relieve their stress. We also learned that it's incredibly important to find the right messenger someone in youth can trust, which could be a parent, a public health professional, school counselor, teacher, or other trusted adults in their lives. But finding trusted adults is incredibly important for teens. And peer-to-peer engagement is another piece of this that also can work. And it's important for kids to hear from other kids that they might look up to that say vaping is not cool and that it's also disgusting, like most of them feel that the cigarettes are. And some kids also have this misperception that everybody vapes, but that's not the case. And having youth advocates as part of the conversation is incredibly important to dispel that myth. And those are some of the things we learned from conducting the focus groups and that we bring forward in the work that we we continue to do with youth. And there's uh, one thing I want to dive a little bit deeper on that Elise mentioned is kind of, you know, who that message is, is coming from, you know, I mean, the message itself is important with the briefly, the message being, you know, vaping is, is unhealthy and it can harm the, the developing brain, but the context matters so much too, you know, it's, it's, it's beyond the message. It's who's delivering it. It's how it's being delivered. Youth, I think are used to you know, as at least mentioned, kind of being lectured at and being told what not to do and what's harmful to them. And the youth in our study mentioned that a lot. They mentioned that they're doing this behavior that they find cool and interesting. And but adults are kind of judging them, you know, that they're doing yeah. something wrong. Um, so then the adult telling them like, hey, don't do this. It actually has the reverse effect. You know, you, you, you listen to reactants from the students and they get stubborn and then makes it even more attractive. Which any parent of a teen could also tell you, but you know we did this here. Um, I, is it all right if I sh- share some of our favorite quotes from the paper about this exact finding? Yeah, absolutely. Is that okay? Okay, so about the messengers and the messaging. So, for example, teens don't want to have us, you know, big school presentations. Here's a quote from one of the focus group participants: "The presentations don't always work because there are still some people vaping even in the auditorium during it." And they also talked about, you know, everybody's very into doing some low hanging fruit things and, and nothing, I'm not judging teachers and educators from doing that, but putting up posters and prevention posters all over the school, that doesn't seem to work either. And here's one of the quotes from one of the participants. I've seen people 
laughing at the posters in the bathroom. I've watched people rip them down and put them in the garbage. They just think it's funny. So we just, as John said, we did get some really rich, honest feedback from teens about the messengers and the platforms that are being used. And I think that, you know, kind of, so that's kind of, in essence, sort of what not to do, like what doesn't work. So, so what does work, right? And at least, yes. you know, it's like, okay, you, you need, if it's an adult, it needs to be a trusted adult, someone who the youth can relate to, who they have a relationship with, you know, that message is going to go a little bit deeper. I think been kind of driving a little bit, a little bit harder is, I think Elise mentioned this too, the, the peer-to-peer education. If other youth, if other peers that, you know, that individual student respects and, you know, maybe looks up to or has a relationship with, if that individual is saying vaping is, you know, is unattractive, is unappealing, is, you know, is gross or, you know, fill in the adjective that you'd like, that message is really going to, because teens, it, they're teens, you know, they're, they're so socially conscious. I mean, every human being is, but especially at that age, the social implications of youth behavior are so powerful. So, you know, kind of tapping into those social implications through peer education, I think is a really good way to create messages that are going to resonate with youth. And that's exactly what John is talking about is exactly what we have done with our findings. And it's, it's really become a wonderful resource for us to create tools to talk not only with youth, but with parents and educators. So, you know, what I think is really great about how we've used the data that we collected is that we've created communication tools for educators and parents about how to speak with teens about e-cigarette harms and ways to positively influence teen decision-making about e-cigarette use. I, I love now talking with parents and talking about parents are so afraid to have just have a conversation with your teen about risk behavior. They're so afraid sometimes I've noticed to, if they talk about it, it's going to happen, but it's, it's about setting the stage for you to be that trusted adult, to have a conversation about what do you see at school? What's going on? How do you feel about it? You know, what are our values in our family about what we expect from you? So it's really been helpful to shape how parents can talk with their own teenagers about this and also how schools can speak with their students and not having the principal, you know, say things over the loudspeaker about vaping, having these one, you know, having more thoughtful, deep conversations with kids. And the most important thing I think that this work has done for us and for how we are using it is that we created a workshop for teens that we call unpacking myths and facts about vaping. And we started it as an in-person presentation workshop. And of course, last year it turned into a zoom version and we ended up learning how to use things like Google Classroom. And so how are we going to engage them now on a remote platform? And we just got done talking about how important it is to engage them in small groups and one-on-one and, and having face-to-face conversations, but we, we were able to do it. And the best part about it personally in my work that I feel very proud of is using what we learned about peer-to-peer education. So now we, we have teens that we've trained high school age students, they co-facilitate workshops with us. And we are always updating our workshops by getting feedback from them and from young people that take the workshop about what's working, what's not working for them. And that to me is, we just have to continue to listen and grow and change and try new things with them, you know, and talk with them and not at them. And we've just got back into the classroom. In fact, this week was the second time 
since COVID that we've been back in a middle school classroom setting with our high school co-facilitators. And they pretty much did the whole training and the whole presentation this time. And I, it was incredible to, to watch the interaction. They talk about what stresses them out in high school and what they do to relieve stress and then get ask the kids the same question. And then, then they talk about, you know, the, the harshness of how the dopamine, how when you vape and the nicotine hits your dopamine receptors and, and the negativity around that, but how important it is to do healthy things to release natural dopamine. So it's like this great way of getting them to just open up and talk. And it's, it's really been exciting to see. And another thing about this that I think is really exciting is that with this peer-to-peer -peer engagement, we're also creating young advocates. And it's so important for youth to be engaged in the tobacco prevention advocacy space for them to be at the table with the adults that are trying to change policy. And that's another piece of this that youth that we work with and we start engaging with that they do. We've had kids work at the local and at the state level on this. Yeah, and another way in which we've taken these findings and, and acted on them is just how do we capture e-cigarette use amongst youth? You know, I mean, the, pretty clear in the findings of this paper is that when we ask youth about e-cigarettes, they kind of struggle to come up with a response and an association with that term. It's not what the kids say, basically. It's not what they call, you know, they use vaping or other sort of slang terms to refer to that behavior. Um, and e-cigarette use sounds like something their 80-year-old grandmother might, might call it, you know. So several years ago, when we were collecting, uh, trying to tap into this behavior using our statewide surveys, that's what we would call, we would just ask youth, you know, how often have you used e-cigarettes in the past 30 days or something similar to that. But now, you know, with our most recent surveys, we are sure to include, you know, term it as vaping, but then also going beyond that will include pictures of the devices that we're referring to will include most common brand names like Juul or like, uh, you know, whatever, whatever they might be. Uh, he's probably has. <laughs> I hate to tell you, John, according to teens, Juul is very 2019. Okay. <laughs> so. Um, they, it actually, yeah, the, and the names keep changing too. But I just want to add something right there because, you know, when we did the focus groups, we started out with this brainstorming about the word vaping, the words e-cigarettes and the word cigarettes. There was this huge response and kind of giggling in the room when it came to the word vaping. And they, that's where I learned all types of vape tricks and slang terms, e-cigarettes. It was like crickets, or isn't that what grownups used to quit smoking? And then they just could, they had just this huge negative influx of words that they just shouted out when it came to cigarettes. So we use that at the beginning of our workshop to this day with teens, because it's such a great icebreaker. And it's a really great way to set the stage and see what they know. And it also helps me see what's going on in eighth grade in 2022, post COVID versus the eighth graders that I spoke to two years ago. And, and it, I am personally fascinated by the fact that nothing has changed. Sometimes you hear definitely a little bit more about nicotine. They know vapes nicotine. They've heard some more language around negativity about vaping, but I still hear the same things. I could, I could write down exactly what I'm going to hear. I'm going to hear bathrooms. I'm going to hear the flavors. I'm going to hear the school bus. I'm hearing a lot about, you know, social media, movies, and TV. Then again, when it comes to e-cigarettes, same thing. Uh, is that the same as vaping? I'm not sure. And when cigarettes, they have a huge negative response to that. 
And it's just a great conversation starter with teens about, you know, why do you think you, why do you think that is? And I, I just find it interesting that it hasn't changed since we did the focus groups. Yeah, I think it's a good point where the behavior is still there. It's still very prevalent among this age group. And it was the problem back then. And it, it remains a problem, um, you know, something as, as public health professionals that we still need to get to the bottom of and figure out the best ways to try to prevent, prevent use. And then also those who are using and who are addicted, how do we best help support them in, in making a quit attempt, you know? Yeah, that's really the only way that we're going to drive the behavior down. You know, something you just brought up, John, that I think is interesting is about how do you, you know, you can set the stage and talk about the dangers, but you're also dealing with kids who might be addicted. And so what we do in our workshop is we had learned in the focus groups about how kids hate feeling judged. And they really, even if you're not trying to make them feel judged, they often perceive that you're judging them. So we make that very clear in the conversations we have with teens now that this is not a place of judgment. This is a place for information. And we talk about, in fact, the Minnesota Department of Health has this great quit vaping tool for kids called My Life, My Quit. And we talk about that and it's completely confidential and they don't have to tell their parents and they can get this information. And we really want to just make it like, here, this is a medical issue. If you have a problem, find a trusted adult. Here's some really good resources and how important it is to just normalize that piece of it and not make people feel shame or judged. So I'm glad you brought that up about cessation because that's such a big, important part of this too now, because there's so many kids that are dealing with this and did not realize that they would get addicted in R. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. It's, it's something that, you know, they use a handful of times. And I think something that we found in, in our study that we maybe weren't expecting to, or weren't expecting to come up was just kind of the, that air of invincibility of teens. They may know the, the dangers and the harms associated with the behavior that they're engaging in. Um, and that's true of any, any, you know, substance use, any risk behavior that teens engage in, they may know that it's wrong or that it's, that it's dangerous, but they don't think that those negative consequences are going to happen to them. Or, you know, in, in the case of addiction, they may know that nicotine and e-cigarettes are addicting, but they think that they'll be able to quit whenever they want to. And from past research, we know that after just a handful of uses of, of uh, nicotine containing products, those first signs of addiction can show up just after a handful of uses. So I think there's an underestimation of how quickly uh, that addiction can begin, or at least the first signs of it. That's why it's really great now that we have some youth that are working with us so they can tell their stories about friends and about their own experiences with vaping and how kids that we've talked to and they can now share their stories that, yeah, I was just hitting my vape at a party or someone else's vape at a party. And then all of a sudden I had to go buy one. And then here I am sitting in math class and all I'm thinking about is how am I going to get my next hit? And nobody thinks that's going to happen to them. And yeah, I learned a new term, which I'm it's obviously it's a social science term that I didn't know because I, we kept seeing this, the entire, the consistency of invincibility is a theme across the focus groups. But I learned the term invincibility fable, you know, the thought pattern that is most notably noted frequently in teenagers the way that they think it's characterized by a belief of their indestructibility. And, you know, it's obviously something that we, it's, it's a normal thought pattern of teens. So how do you reach people who think that nothing bad's going to happen to them? And that is, that's the million dollar question. 
Absolutely. And as I'm kind of just thinking back and processing all of that and thinking about how these youth are in school and they're used to being in a learning environment and there's this feeling of judgment and there's this disconnect from those that are teaching and those that are learning and how you've really talked about the importance of a trusted adult. And that almost makes me think about ACEs, you know, adverse childhood experiences and how the important of having that important adult in their life to prevent or help guide them from certain situations. And then moving forward into that peer-to-peer connection and that really relational role that they play, I think it has a lot to do with that mutual respect that you're finding with having those teenagers in the classroom teaching with you and seeing eye to eye and not having such a big age group or social disconnect between those teaching and those learning. And I love that you said, you know, talk with them, not talk at them. I think that that seems like a bigger piece as well that you're finding with the forms, they were not using language that was relevant to the teens and being in the same room as them, whether it's now virtually, but being able to really connect and understand that to combat that invincibility ideal. So given all of that and all this research, it's been a little bit of time since that's come out and it's had to be adjusted due to COVID. It was done in 2019. What's the impact in 2022? I know you mentioned there's been some change and no change. I'd love to learn a little more. It, it's it's like a game of whack-a-mole. And you hear that a lot in this public health space when it comes to tobacco prevention, because I mean, we could have an entire podcast about some of the new synthetic nicotine products that are coming out there and that are might not even be regulated as, as tobacco products. And it, it's, it's just, there's a constant shift in the regulatory space with this too. And that's very frustrating. But to me, what I think is even more frustrating that is that since we did this study, it was great. You know, Juul was the hot thing when we did the study and that's changed, but disposable vapes, which became on the market in 2019, approximately 2019, became huge. And they are very similar to the pod mod vapes like a jewel, they contain very high levels of nicotine salt e-liquid, which is what is, that's what jewel, actually that jewel is the company that started that type of nicotine. Instead of the freebase nicotine, they used nicotine salt e-liquid, which makes it much easier for the user to inhale. It's not harsh and it gives this huge hit of nicotine that goes directly to their brain. And just, it's a much huger hit of nicotine. And some of these products like the, the brand Puff Bar, for example, they have much larger, as I said, much larger amounts of nicotine in them compared to a jewel, for example. And that's a huge part of teen culture right now from what you can see on social media. For example, if you go on TikTok, and this has been going on since I've noticed this since about 2020, kids have these TikTok videos showing their disposable vape collections there. And they just, I mean, there are hundreds and hundreds of them. I mean, that's not something adults are going to see or access to. And this is what kids are showing. And, you know, they're dancing with their vapes. So there's a lot of disposable use. And to me, I think that, and John, I'd love to hear what you think about this. I mean, disposables are just the next iteration of the pod mod devices that are very much the same thing. They're just add more litter to our environment too. So, I mean, the other thing about them that since since we did the study is that there was a little band-aid the FDA put on some of the flavored devices, the PodMod devices, but they've left out there the disposable vaping devices, refillable PodMods, menthol PodMods, and more than 15,000 flavored nicotine e-liquids. 
they were left out of the FDA policy that removed certain PodMod device flavors from the market. So all the factors that I'm talking about really have made disposable cigarettes even more appealing to youth. And in fact, in 2020, the 2020 National Youth Tobacco Survey showed that we have approximately 3.6 million youth current e-cigarette users at, at that time. There's a huge noticeable uptick in disposable vapes and more than eight in 10 youth used flavored e-cigarettes. So all of these factors really show that this is still a really big issue. And it's just, I think kids are hearing more about the negativity, but it's still a growing problem and it's continuing to shift and change rapidly. And it's still, the problem is still there. And the findings from our focus group continue to be relevant. And I'm hoping that what we found and how we're continuing to use it and the work we do with youth will bear fruit and be helpful as time goes on. Yeah, and I, I agree. I think that, yeah, it's very much is a game of whack-a-mole with uh, when you're talking about devices. I mean, one, it seems as though the kind of the manufacturing side, the industry side is a lot more nimble than the regulatory side. The regulatory side, you know, in, in essence, kind of has to play catch up rather than being able to kind of be out ahead of the game. Because, yeah, these new devices are, you know, the this field has evolved so much in the last five to 10 years that it's, it's impossible to stay ahead of everything. So I think there is work to do on that side of things. But another aspect of our findings that I'd like to touch on that really kind of hit me when, you know, when I reread the results and kind of the quotes from the students is how so many of them report that vaping is a coping mechanism for them. You know, they're, they're, they may be experiencing anxiety or depression and, and it's just kind of a, it's a good go-to for them to calm their nerves or, you know, for, for them to kind of get past whatever stress or issues they're dealing with at the time. And I mean, that's an issue that was relevant when we conducted the study a couple of years ago and perhaps even more relevant now in, in you know, this kind of uh, pandemic world that we're living in where uh, I think everyone is feeling has felt uh, over the past couple of years has felt a little bit off or experienced more anxiety or depression that they maybe than they may have otherwise experienced. And uh, that's true of everyone, but I think especially youth who have their whole world has been turned upside down where they used to be able to go in and see their friends every day at school. And then they were, you know, forced to kind of isolate at home and do school via Zoom and just a lot of isolation. And with that, you know, comes, you know, comes mental health issues. So, and there needs to be sort of an outlet for that. There needs to be a way to address that. And substance use, including e-cigarettes, is one way, is a coping mechanism. So, so I think it's, you know, youth directly telling us that this is one way that they handle their anxiety and depression. Uh, like I said, it was relevant two years ago, and, and it's perhaps even more relevant now. So I think it's on us as public health professionals to find positive outlets, find positive coping mechanisms, find positive ways for youth to deal with the anxiety and depression and other you know, mental health issues that they're dealing with. So they don't turn to vaping. They don't turn to an addictive substance. So, yeah, I think that's, that's one thing that I will you know, continue to take with me from this study that we need to find positive ways for youth to channel their energy into that don't lead them to addictive substances. 
Absolutely. And I'm thinking just at that last piece that you're talking about needing positive outlets, especially in this time of a lot of isolation and youth and teens don't have the financial stability that a lot of adults have. I mean, a lot of people started baking bread and taking on new hobbies, but this isn't necessarily something that youth have access to. And so definitely as public health professionals, finding a way to help guide them towards more positive outlets. But I will go back and note that it is really awesome that you are building a new generation of advocates alongside you and in these classrooms. And so even though it must feel like whack-a-mole, there is a lot of good that is coming out of this. And it is really exciting to see as it evolves, how we will continue to evolve as a public health field to continue to support our teens and youth better. And before I close it out, I'll just open one more time and see if you both have any last closing thoughts. I was just going to say, I can talk about this all day because I'm so fascinated by what I see and how important it is to listen to teens about their world, to help them navigate their world. And there, and I just think we need to continue to bring them into the conversation and have them help you know, stand together and, and lead together and not just do what we think they want. And, and I think about public health and how the important thing, the first thing you learn in public health is you get community engagement, right? You, you ask a community, how can we help you? What do you need? You don't just come in there and say, this is what you need. This is what we're going to do. And that's the, people forget this is youth culture. And we have to do the same thing with youth that we do in public health and all the other aspects of community engagement and community health promotion. Yeah, I agree. It's, I think uh, as a public health field, we're better at that with adults, but I think with youth, we can kind of lose the fact that they do have a voice. They do have thoughts and ideas on what would be helpful and what will and will not work in terms of messaging and that sort of thing. So I, I'll echo Elisa's thoughts on that. Yeah, and also wanted to say thank you to you, Arden, for giving us the opportunity to chat about our research and just taking the time today and giving us this opportunity. We really appreciate it. And now I'll echo John. Thank you, Arden. This has been really fun and really interesting, and I really appreciate you giving us this platform. Of course, and thank you both for your thoughts and input and conversation around your research. I really appreciate it. And thank you to all our listeners. Have a great rest of your day. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of the HPP podcast. If you enjoyed this content, let us know by tagging us or responding to our promotions on Twitter and LinkedIn. You can also find out more about the Health Promotion Practice Journal from Sage or Sophie's websites. All of these links can be found on the podcast website at anchor.fm forward slash health dash promotion dash practice. Take care and have a great day.